if there is one big key takeaway from all of my work in all of these areas on casual sex, non-monogamy, kink, any anything that we discuss, consent, whatever, there is no one way that works for everyone or one thing that works for everyone. It really depends on who we are and what we want. Hi everyone, welcome to Polycurious, the podcast for those curious about non-monogamy. I am Fernanda, your host, and today's episode is probably one of my favorites. I'm speaking to Dr. Shanna, a professor of sexuality at New York University. For the past 15 years, Dr. Shanna has been working on research, teaching classes, and consulting clients on both non-monogamy and monogamy. And in this conversation, we dive into some of her research, mostly around casual sex, which she actually gave a great TED talk about. But what I'm even more excited for you guys to learn about is her new course called Open Smarter. This course is designed to help people determine what type of relationship works for them based on several personality traits. She even gives us a taste of the course by asking me some questions to figure out what my traits are and based on those, what type of relationship works for me. But even if you don't take the course, what I love about Dr. Shanna is that she believes like I do, that because we're all different, we all need different types of relationships, whether they are non-monogamous or not. Again, I am not an advocate for non-monogamy. If monogamy works for you, I totally 100% support you but I believe most people don't even question whether it works for them or not. And even if you figure out you are non-monogamous, there are so many different ways to do it. And Dr. Shanna is all about that. She's about identifying your traits and needs to figure out what kind of relationship works for you. But before we even get into all of that, we talked to Dr. Shanna about her own journey growing up in Macedonia, which is a fairly traditional country, where she sort of felt like an outsider. She tells us how her own sexuality influenced her passion for research, and she even talks about her previous non-monogamous marriage. Her personal journey is actually something that people don't normally ask her much about, so I think that makes this episode a little extra special. I can't wait for you guys to listen. So, here we go. So, today we're here with Dr. Shanna, and I'm so excited to finally meet her. We actually randomly almost met <laughs> at this uh, trip we were organizing to Storm King, which is a park uh, with a bunch of art sculptures here in New York. And she was going to actually ride with me, but then it ended up not happening, which uh, was a shame, but now I have the opportunity to talk to her. Uh, now we're going to get to know each other. Exactly. She is a researcher, an NYU professor, a podcaster, a speaker. She's so many things. And the more I learned about her work, the more inspired I felt. So I'm looking forward to get to know her a little better and also learn more about her research and her new course for open relationships. So yeah, a lot to cover. Yeah. So why don't you start uh, telling us a little bit about yourself? You are from Macedonia. I don't know when you moved to the US or why, but maybe like speak a little bit about sure. your background. I was born and raised in Macedonia, which is a small country in Southeast Europe that used to be part of Yugoslavia. And I lived there until I was 24. So I moved here for my PhD at Cornell, and that's how I moved to the U.S. and stayed in the U.S. But growing up there, so I grew up in the capital of the country, Skopje, and well, what do you want to know about growing up there? <laughs> um, well, on your website, you mentioned something like you wanted things that society didn't want you to want, <laughs> basically. So yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> So maybe we can talk about that, like what kind of things, um, you know. I was a wild one sexually and just personality-wise, I wanted, and certainly sexually, I wanted 
to have a lot of sex and had a lot of fun. I liked casual sex. I was interested in women. I was interested in some sort of non-monogamy. I didn't even know what that was, but just being monogamous didn't make sense to me. I was partying and like drinking and staying up really late and doing drugs and having sex with people who are much older than me and yeah getting into all sorts of trouble all the while being a straight A student so those two things never interfered but I definitely was on the wild side not a lot of parental supervision during that time, my parents were divorced, so I could kind of get away with it. I lived with my dad, who wasn't being the most attentive parent, so I was just kind of running wild. And it was obviously very formative in many ways, but I was a very highly sexual child from as long as I can remember. Some of my first memories of myself are of me masturbating when I was, I don't know, three, four, five, something like that, very early, I know. And I kept masturbating all through pre-K and kindergarten to my elementary school and middle school years and lost my virginity early. So it was kind of a strange way to grow up. It was I was the odd person out. I did not fit in that was a pretty conservative environment. It wasn't religious, so the flavor of that conservatism is a little different than what conservative would mean to most people in the US today, because Macedonia and Yugoslavia before that was a socialist country. We didn't have religion, it was an atheist country. But still, there was so much kind of very paternalistic and patriarchal. And probably sexist. Yeah, sexist to some extent. Socialism was was weird. It was sexist, more sexist in some ways than what people are accustomed to in the U.S. and less sexist in other ways. So, but definitely, definitely more slut shaming to women than to men. And I, as a woman, wanting all these things, you know, wanting threesomes and casual sex and not monogamy and all that was like not okay, not accepted. So I received a lot of social stigma. Uh, directed in my direction. A lot of people who didn't necessarily want to be friends with me or because of that or some forms of bullying in school around that. A lot of people not wanting to date me because of my reputation. And so, yeah, just dealing with having a reputation Mm. in a relatively small town. I mean, Skopje is the capital, so it's the biggest town in Macedonia, but it's still, it's a small city, 700,000 people. And, and that's that's kind of my background. And one thing I knew always, I mean, I figured, I figured it out there. I found my people, I found my friends. I had a very loving long-term relationship with a woman who I adored, still do. And we had a great group of friends. But I always knew that that environment was too small for me. I knew I needed New York. Right. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that after that, New York was like a little bit like paradise for you. (laughs) Yeah, it was. I had traveled quite a bit. I'd lived in Berlin before I moved to New York. And Berlin is an amazing paradise for sexual misfits like myself. So (laughs) Berlin was kind of my first experience of sex positivity and openness and play parties like sex clubs, people being accepting of that, people not being weirded out by any fetishes or any unusual ideas, you know, swingers mixing in with all. it, It was just such an open environment that I was like, yes, yes, this is where I belong or something like this. And what age were you when you were there? I was there at 22, I think, 22 or 23. Yeah. A year after I I was finishing up my undergrad and I went there for six months to do an internship. And then I came back to Macedonia, finished my thesis published a book based on my thesis on sexual orientation. Oh, wow. That's what my thesis was on. I thought it would be good and useful to 
turn it into a book. So I did some research, some more research on sexual orientation. I published a book in Macedonian. And then I applied to PhD programs and moved to the US. So yeah. I've been here since 2006. Nice. So did you feel like you wanted to understand better, you know, your reality? And that's why you went and looked at the research and studied it? I mean, it's pretty obvious. Yeah. How could it not be that, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know how much awareness I had at the time of how driven I was to study that because of my own personal, but I must have been because I wanted to study non-heterosexuality, so bisexuality, and I then wanted to study casual sex, And I, but I knew I had to study sexuality. It, sexuality had been such a huge part of my life. It had been the driving force in many ways. And yeah, I had to, had to study that thing that was going to keep my interest for the rest of my life when you pick a PhD, you better really, really love that topic because you're going to get stuck with that topic, right? For the rest yeah, of your life. Yeah, what was your topic? Well, I knew I wanted to study sexuality. So I, uh, I applied to work with this professor who studied sexual orientation and I was going to initially study that. I didn't even realize you could study casual sex. I think <laughs> once I came to the US and started reading some of the literature, then I kind of switched my interest. I mean, I did publish a bunch of stuff on sexual orientation with my advisor on the mostly straight people, people who are not like completely straight, but they're not necessarily bi enough. So like the bi-curious almost yeah. kind of thing. And, but then I also had this other big interest in casual sex and non-monogamy. And so I did my dissertation on casual sex and mental health. Yeah, I watched your TED talk on casual mm -hmm. sex. You make really good points there, like really good tips on how to kind of navigate that. Um, so you guys <laughs> should definitely check it out. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that's, a, I think there are a lot of useful pieces of information for how to go about casual sex, because that was a, a big passion of mine trying to teach people how to do casual sex right. I feel a lot of casual sex really gets a bad rep for being all sorts of bad things. And I think a lot of those bad things can be avoided if we went about having casual sex the right way. There is a good way and a bad way to do it across many different things in terms of pleasure, in terms of consent, in terms of in terms of communication with the partner, in terms of why you're going into it, your intentionality, in terms of sexual health and how you approach that, in terms of your feelings and how you manage your emotions around the people that you're having this casual sex with. And so because I think because it's so stigmatized as a bad thing, no one really teaches anyone how to do it well because you don't teach people how to do well bad things in a way and so I was very passionate about trying to make this story about casual sex more complex and teach people how to do it well yeah I remember two of the things that you mentioned in your TED talk that I realized are things that I learned maybe too late and you know I think you gave your TED talk at a university to college students mm -hmm. and I thought I wish I'd known that <laughs> this during my college years um <laughs> one of them was You know, if you're just going to have sex once with a person, like you better tell them what you like, right? Mm -hmm. to, so you make it an enjoyable experience. Yeah. Otherwise, what's the point, right? Because like it's hard to get comfortable with a person enough so that sex is good, even after having sex many times, you know, it depends. But but if you don't communicate, if you're only having sex once, like how is that going to work? Yeah, assertiveness is really, really important. Like telling people what it is that you want and what it is that you don't want. And the less you know your partner and the less they know you, right, the more important that becomes that you communicate that. Cause yeah, and at the same time, like one can understand why it's hard Or it can be hard because you don't know this person. Oh, so yeah. how can you be completely honest and like tell them exactly what you like without, you know, feeling shame or whatever? Yeah, anxiety, fear, discomfort. Yeah, it's not easy at all. No, it's not easy. And especially given that we live in a world that doesn't teach us how to communicate about sex, period. Casual or non-casual. So very often we don't have the language. We don't yeah. have 
these tools that we need in order to communicate that. So it's it's not at all easy. And I say this to people, casual sex is not for everyone. It really isn't for everyone. Nothing is for everyone, really, yeah. <laughs> sexually speaking. And if there is one big key takeaway from all of my work on in all of these areas, on casual sex, non-monogamy, kink, any, anything that we discuss, consent, whatever, there is no one way that works for everyone or one thing that works for everyone. It really depends on who we are and what we want and what's happened to us. And we're a product of, of course, our genetics and our upbringing and everything that we've experienced thus far, but we're different people. Our personalities are different. Our skill levels of different kinds are at different levels. Our preferences are all of those things. And we have to take those things into consideration when deciding how to go about it. So it's funny, <laughs> at that TED Talk, there were a couple of those college women who were in the audience who came up to me and said, I wish I'd known this sooner when I was in high school. <laughs> Even they <laughs> thought it was too late at that point. <laughs> I mean, I think that the earliest, the better, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think another thing that you talked about in that talk uh, was about catching feelings mm -hmm. for someone. Um, and, you know, like, as you said, like, it might not, maybe that's one of the reasons why casual sex might not be for everyone, because I guess some people get too attached too, too fast. But you, you also said something very wise, which is like, there are ways to control that as well. There are ways to kind of, you know, remind yourself that you don't have to start like, planning your life with that person the next day and kind of like stop yourself from that. And I think not only in casual sex, but in general in relationships. And actually that's one of the things that I want to talk about. Um, I think it's one of the traits in your course, mm -hmm. which I feel like a lot of, a lot of us experience, uh, which is infatuation susceptibility, right? Infatuation susceptibility, yeah. yeah. But before we go and talk about that. No, but, and, and we will hold off on that. But the thing is, these are all traits that we all have and they permeate our lives, right? In our relationship lives and sexual lives in particular. So whether we're talking about kink or casual sex or non-monogamy or sexual orientation or whatever it is, these traits matter in how we go about it. And I think that's why it's so important for people to know themselves and to think about, okay, where am I on this? And then think about it. Maybe... I don't want to be here. Maybe I want to be somewhere else on this trade. There are ways to do that. And there are ways to work around whatever your levels are currently. And there are ways that you can kind of shift those levels up and down. So that's great. Uh, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> But before we move into your course, it sounds like you maybe had non-monogamous experiences throughout your life, even before you came to New York. But How did your experience with non-monogamy kind of start and evolve? Because I know that uh, you were also in a non-monogamous marriage for mm -hmm. a few years, right? So can you talk a little bit about that? My non-monogamy history? Yeah. Sure. I was in non-monogamous relationships pretty much my entire life, except that until I came to the U.S., all of those were non-consensually, non-monogamous. Mm, yeah. So I was supposed to be monogamous, but I was cheating on people. And I cheated on some people more than others, but I never could stay sexually fateful. That just didn't make sense to me. <laughs> I loved, I just loved so much the novelty factor different people, different bodies, different smells, different stories, different flirtations, like all of those things. I just fucking loved it. I mean, I still do. That's one of the traits we'll talk about. Novelty seeking. Some of us are really high on novelty seeking. And I was one of those people. I am one of those people who just loves novelty. And it just didn't make sense to me to just be with one person sexually no matter how much I love them or care about them or was connected to them those things were kind of separate to me right I see someone I find attractive I'm like oh, I want to fuck you yeah I don't need to talk to you I don't need to know you yeah I just want to run my hands up and down your abs and my pussy is wet and let's do it kind of thing yeah and so with 
that set of traits. And clearly, I didn't have a very strong moral compass <laughs> to keep me from doing it. And I don't know. I mean, you also probably didn't know that that was an option. Oh, I didn't really know. Well, I, I mean, tried. like like that doing it ethically, ethically was, was. was an option. I tried, actually. I tried every single partner that I had. I think the first one was when I was 13. I was trying to convince him that we should be open. I think that happened because... I think there was a time when I thought, you know, when you're on your period, you can't have sex. I don't think that anymore. But <laughs> there was a time when I thought that pretty yeah. religiously. And so I would tell him when I was in my period, I was like, you should go have some sex with someone else if you can't. And he would be like, what are you talking about? Like, no. I'm like, yeah, well, I don't, why well, I don't see why not. And then later on, I, I really tried to convince these partners to be open. I wanted to do it consensually, even though I didn't have the words for what consensual non-monogamy is or poly or swinging, like none of those words existed in my vocabulary, but the concept of it existed and I tried to make it happen, but all my partners just looked at me as if I was crazy. And so I, I allowed myself to do it non-ethically a lot. And I wasn't, I, I didn't love that part. I wasn't proud of that. I just felt like my desire was so strong and I thought it was a stupid reason that everyone thought I shouldn't be able to indulge in my desires. I when didn't, it didn't like affect your other relationships. Exactly, exactly. It did not affect how I felt about my partners. You know, the woman that I mentioned that I dated for five years, and she was the love of my life in many ways. And I adored her. I just wanted to have sex with other people too. And it didn't affect it. It did not affect at all how much I was devoted to her. Did and she loved know her. or that it was before you were able to find someone who you could do do it ethically with? Yeah, that was before. And she knew about some of them, probably didn't know about all of them, probably didn't want to know about some of those. And after we I mean, we didn't even separate I left for the US basically after and she stayed in in Macedonia and once that happened once and once we realized that probably we're not going to end up together somehow she wasn't going to move here I wasn't going to move back and after that I was like okay if she's not going to be my partner then I'm never going to promise monogamy to anyone ever again there's clearly another way to do it there are clearly people doing it ethically and without lying and how how did you discover those people was it in new york or yeah it was in new york i mean i started my phd i started reading and researching and so i found the all the terms around swinging and all that and i had already experienced that as i mentioned in berlin which was about a year or two before i moved to the u.s I, that was my stint in berlin and i had some lovers there that I would go to the sex club in in Berlin and so I knew that that whole subculture existed and so when I went to the US I was like I need to find these people because these are my people and I got on that almost immediately as soon as I It's landed. not very hard no. like I literally started meeting people from that community the day I arrived really? in New York City <laughs> I mean it was kind of maybe not normal because I met someone at the airport who introduced me to the burner community like meaning the burning man community open-minded uh sexually open often not always uh community like the day i arrived wow. i met someone who like introduced me to everyone and i was just like because i also lived um i lived in amsterdam i did my undergrad in amsterdam and and where are you from I'm from Mexico. Mexico. I'm from Mexico. I'm half Cuban as well. I did my high school in India. So I, I had oh, kind wow. of like lived in like many different places. And there was not like a place where I felt I arrived and I had like 20 friends already like my second day here. <laughs> yeah. Like it's so easy to make friends here in New York City and there's so many people. Uh, but yeah, anyhow. So yeah, you found that community when For you arrived here. For the you got lucky. Yeah. It's interesting. New York, I mean, this is a tangent, but New York is interesting. I know a lot of people who 
have been incredibly lonely here, who've come here and who have not had the luck that we've had to find a community. And New York, if you don't have community, can be a pretty rough place, pretty lonely place to be. And so it's kind of an interesting dichotomy, I think, for for different people. But anyway. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Tangent. Yeah. So I found the swinger community first, and then I kind of connected more with the burner community and the more poly and kink community. So that was... Once I arrived in New York, it really wasn't that that hard to find. And it was pretty clear to me. I mean, that was the point. You know, when I was with my ex-girlfriend, she would always say, like, if you really, truly love someone, you don't desire other people. And I tried. And she was older than me. And when we met, I was, I think, 19. She was 32 or something like that. I was like, maybe she knows something I don't know. You know, maybe she's right. But my lived experience of these desires that I had and what happened when I indulged in those desires and how that affected us or really didn't, all of that just was very contradictory. And when I came here, when I kind of started digging a little bit into the literature and reading some of the psychology research, I was like, no, this is clearly we're different. I think that's true for some people and it's not true for other people. And I'm one of those people for whom that's, that's not true. You do desire other people a lot when, even when you love someone a lot. And I was like, there is a way to do this that's ethical, that people are okay with, that you can have friends without having to defend these kinds of behaviors every step of the way. Yeah, you didn't have to deal with that stigma mm-hmm. that you dealt probably your whole life in Macedonia. Yeah. Yep. And even at Cornell, I was I was dealing with I mean, it. there's still that stigma. I mean, I still don't tell everyone I meet about my non-monogamous relationship. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no. Cor- Cornell was very... I mean, America is pretty conservative if it's not New York City. Yeah. There's a lot of conservative values and lifestyles here. And so I, I experienced, even in college, so much sexism and and misogyny around that and slut shaming. So I was experiencing that quite a bit at Cornell, but then I had my New York City because Cornell and New York are not too far. And I would go to New York, party with- like, Oh my God, that's that was my experience. Really? Like I came here to do my master's in journalism at Columbia. So I live in the Upper West, West Side. Every weekend I would go down to Brooklyn. Okay. I would stay at my friend's place, but definitely I was also like having this kind of double life that's a little funny. bit. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's kind of my evolution, I guess, on that front. And I met my husband, ex-husband at this point in that community, in the New York swinger burner community. And from the very beginning, it was negotiated, very explicitly negotiated that we would be not monogamous. Did he have any experience in non-monogamous? Yeah, yeah. He had, we had both... Basically, at the point that we met, we had both come to the conclusion independently that we are non-monogamous types of people, and we've tried monogamy, it does not work for us, and we were dedicated to finding a non-monogamous partner. And so it was just about figuring out exactly what that non-monogamy was going to look like, because right there are so many different ways that an open relationship of some sort can go, and that's often something people don't realize when they kind of start getting curious about it. It's like, oh, I want open relationship. You want open relationship. Great, we want the same thing. And you're like, um, not necessarily. (laughs) So that was some adjustment between the the two of us in terms of the kind of openness that we wanted, but there was never a question of it being open. And we were open the entire time that we were together, which was about seven or eight years. And what kind of openness did you want as opposed to him? I wanted complete and utter openness. Yeah. As open as one can imagine. At least at the time, that's what I was really after. I wanted to, for both of us to be able to have sex with whoever, whenever, however, alone, separately, together, all the ways. And I also didn't have restrictions on like who he could be with or not be with. And he had kind of more 
things that he was uncomfortable with. So in the beginning, we went through a period when we had a rule that we would only play separately. Uh, we would only play together when we were in the same town. And if we wanted to have separate play, that would happen only if we weren't in the same city. Mm -hmm. And we had some rules around disclosure of that stuff, you know, when he wanted to know, like he wanted to know only when he was ready to ask as opposed to me just telling him when something has happened. And then there were some restrictions on like who I could or could not have sex with, like people who were close to him in some way came from his vanilla world or came from some of his other circles that were not from the poly world. So yeah, we kind of, we, we tried to figure out what, works and try to accommodate as much as possible his needs. I did not do a great job of that throughout the years. I tried. Yeah. But I tried. I did not do a great job, but I, I didn't have a lot of empathy. <laughs> That's one of the more more recent realizations that I've had and transformations in a way. I've been developing empathy for the last couple of years. <laughs> so I would probably, I would do things very differently if I were starting that relationship now. But, but I think, I mean, we, we did a fairly good job of, of communicating and what it is that we respectively needed is is just that it's one of those cases where the, the two people actually want different things, mm -hmm. different levels of or different types of non-monogamy and who gives, you know, which, because that's, there are not that many solutions. Very often there's no ideal solution in, in those in those cases, either one person is going to compromise and go to the other person's level or the other person is going to compromise, sort of sacrifice their, whatever it is that they're sacrificing to move over to the other person's level. You meet somewhere in the middle. So both people sacrifice something or you go your separate ways because you're not a good match. Yeah, I feel like... It's like in, even in monogamous relationships, there's some sort of sacrifice, right? Um, oh, yeah. in, in monogamous relationships, it might be not to have sex with other people, but even in non-monogamous relationships, like you have to sacrifice some things in order to find that, you know, middle, middle ground, I guess. Um, it's always going to be some compromise and some sacrifice, yeah. Yeah, and that's often a big, conversation and this ongoing discussion to have with with your partner at all times i think who wants what and who's who's sacrificing what and kind of being aware of of that and sometimes sometimes some of us can just have the luxury of being able to sacrifice more than other people we have more leeway right like some of us even though we have our preferred level, we might have quite a bit of flexibility around that preferred level, whereas someone else might not have a lot of flexibility around their preferred level. They might be more rigid and not able to move that much around that. So all of those things are things that need to be kind of explored, made aware of, acknowledged, negotiated. Lifelong skill. <laughs> yeah, Um, so, I mean, I, I guess you kind of answered the question that I was going to ask you, which is like, what are some things that you learned in your non-monogamous marriage? Because I kind of wanted to get the personal story before <laughs> we dive into the research and the, your professional life, because, you know, I'm sure that you've learned different things from experience and then from studying non-monogamy. Yeah, absolutely. You learn Different things, I mean, they're all about the same thing, but they complement each other. They all fill in different pieces of that puzzle. And I learned, yeah, so much through that relationship. And you also learn so much 
by being surrounded by other people and negotiating that with all the other people and other partners and talking to clients and working on kind of figuring out their ideal scenarios around this. So all of those things are, are different sources of, of knowledge. If you don't mind me asking, why did you eventually break up? I know that it's like a complicated question, but, you know, I, I feel like uh, listeners might be wondering, uh, was it because they were non-monogamous, you know? I think our relationship kind of ran its course. There, It was not because we were non-monogamous or anything like that. It was... Being we'd been together for eight years, and I think we were really compatible on many levels, and our relationship worked quite well. But I think there was no longer that passion that mm -hmm. I really kind of wanted or wanted more of. I don't think I, I don't think his needs for affection and and closeness were met as well as he would have uh, liked. And yeah, so we're we're good friends. Now. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that can happen after eight years. That sounds like it's a very normal thing that happens in any, any type, relationship, of, type yeah. of relationship. Oh, thank you for sharing all of that. Sure. So yeah, so I guess that uh, we can talk about your more like in your professional life. Uh, you are about to launch a course. It's called Open Smarter, right? Open Smarter. Do you want to give us like an overview of what the course is about? Sure. The course is already launched, <laughs> up and running. It's an online course that people can take sort of on their own time. It consists of videos and exercises and scales and all all this good stuff that's ready for them to engage with it. And there's also going to be a live component, live classroom component. And we will record the live component. So if people missed it, they'll be able to, you know, listen to those recordings and see what's happened during the lives as well. But even without the live component, the the, the course is, is a great course in and of itself. And I think it has a lot of potential to help people make smarter decisions, really, about their sex and relationship life. The goal of it is to introduce people to the important relationship personality traits. So the kind of the personality traits that we all have that make a difference in what kinds of relationship types are going to work for you or not work for you, in terms of like how hard is this going to be, how good of a fit almost certain relationship approaches are for you based on those personality traits. And then what to do about that. You kind of, so it's a deep dive into yourself in a way that informs your relationship decisions. Yeah, I love that because I think that in order to really know what relationship works for you, you, yeah, you have to evaluate what your traits are. So yeah, I guess on that note, I'm going to selfishly uh, use you right now to maybe explain what some of those traits are and maybe ask me some questions so we can determine where I stand and, <laughs> and maybe whether I'm doing my relationship right. <laughs> oh my God. All right. We can totally try that. The course goes over basically 12 different important traits and... It has all these surveys that people can take for each of the traits and then based on where you are, kind of low, medium, or high, based on these scales, which are all adapted from actual academic research for all the ones that we have scales for. And then all of those kind of inform the different decisions. So we're not going to go through all of them, but right. I'm going to ask you about a couple of questions. These ones were the ones that I wanted to know more about. So I'm just going to tell you guys. Uh, so novelty seeking, social stigma resilience, pleasure capacity, and infatuation susceptibility. I think that probably social stigma resi resilience is pretty self-explanatory. But, you know, one that I was like really curious about, pleasure capacity. I was like, <laughs> wow, are some people more able to enjoy pleasure than other people? Is that... yeah. Yeah. True. Well, 
we are all built differently, right? Our bodies are built differently physiologically, biologically, and then we all have very different levels of or types of experiences with pleasure at any point. You know, how, how old are you? 26. 26. You have 26 years of interacting with your body in certain ways that create pleasure or not create pleasure, contexts that you've you've learned about what is pleasurable, what is not pleasurable, where can you get pleasure, who can you get pleasure from, which types of factors need to be happening in the environment for you to get pleasure, for you to become, and when I talk about pleasure in, in this course, and you can certainly take this more broadly or more narrowly, but the way I define it in the course is a combination of how easily you become aroused, physiologically aroused, how quickly and easily, versus how quickly and easily you become inhibited, and then also the ease of orgasm, how easily and quickly one can orgasm. And we vary on that so much. There are people who get turned on basically the drop of the hat you know some someone looks at you the right way in a sexy way and you might start to feel your body getting aroused i mean as you were saying when you <laughs> see someone you want to have uh -huh. sex with you just want to touch mm -hmm. their abs like you yep. feel it yes i understand that <laughs> so you have people like that and then you have people who need quite a bit before yeah. they get going everything has to be right there's got to be the right type of person the right kind of connection or this yeah and, and actually uh i'm sure you've read the come as you are exactly. book uh she talks about that i'll link it in the show notes um but yeah exactly yes. yeah so emily nagoski's book on come as you are exactly talks about this component of of pleasure capacity this sexual arousability and inhibition that different people have and so and then on top of that you also have this orgasmic capacity some of us can come Immediately, I, I had a partner who literally, you barely touched her. It's been <laughs> 30 seconds maybe of providing some sort of stimulation and she's coming all over the place. And then she would come 20 times a session. I thought I was highly orgasmic, but when I met that woman, I was like, okay, clearly I'm not anywhere near the pro <laughs> levels of this, you know? And then you have people who don't orgasm at all. Right, and, and how does that relate to what kind of relationship you'd like to have? It okay. So actually, tell me where you are first. Okay, um, I definitely think that I'm more on the hornier side. Uh -huh. um, yeah, uh, I don't Does know. Does your body get aroused? I mean, I I I get aroused. Arousal is not really an issue, but like the actual like having an orgasm mm -hmm. might take a little while. And normally, I don't have I don't orgasm more than once or twice. Like I I'm working on it, <laughs> <laughs> but you know the like feeling aroused or feeling horny just like by looking at someone or having an interaction with someone uh, that happens very easily. Mm. Are you do you feel that with people that you're not? kind of emotionally attached to and committed to or do you need to have some level of emotional connection with the person no i actually think that sometimes it might be even the opposite you know like it's it's easier for me to feel aroused uh with someone that you know i might not know as well so i can like fantasize and it's kind of a novel uh, i definitely think that when when i you know read that novelty seeking was one of the traits i was like wow i feel like i'm very strong on that too you mm -hmm. know yeah yeah you're in my camp <laughs> <laughs> yeah i said of of both of those traits. So say novelty seeking, which is this trait of how, how much we're drawn to new, to new. New, new shiny. People, new shiny people. things, people, <laughs> objects, experiences, just new, right? Our brains are, literally our brains are different from the people who want less novelty. Our brains need more stimulation in order to kind of keep us engaged. Whereas that same level of stimulation to someone with lower novelty seeking is going to be overwhelming. It's going to be too much. It's going to be like, ah, no, give me, give me less. Give me, give me familiar. You know, yeah. familiar feels comfortable. New often feels scary. Whereas to the people who are on the novelty seeking side, novel feels exciting. The new 
the fact that you don't know is kind of the excitement. Do you feel that? Yeah, 100%. And I actually, and this is another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, um, one of the things I worry is that that trait can actually hurt people, you know, because I can very easily like feel attracted towards someone and not only in a sexual way, because I do like to to become friends with the people that I have sex with. Right. But, um, you know, I might very quickly, it's not like I don't want to continue having sex with that person necessarily, but I might find another person and then right. that person like calls my attention and there's like limited time so how do you mm. how do you balance that mm -hmm. and I think that I read somewhere in your website uh, the infatuation susceptibility as well how do you manage all these relationships <laughs> when you feel so much or want so much one new things all the time you know that's such a great question and yeah we do sometimes get in trouble because of of these things we end up kind of hurting people or kind of hurting their feelings a little bit when we we get sort of distracted away quick more quickly than than they do but so uh, and i'll answer that question but thinking about how are these relevant these traits if you're a high novelty seeker chances are monogamy is not going to be the right fit for you it's just not. You can if you have amazing impulse control, which some people do. I know some people. But who, who do. wants to live like that? Like repressing like all that? your impulses. You exactly. know, and a lot of people do. A lot of people do that. And you know what? If that's what you want to choose, that's why another trait that I go over, it's it's less of a trait, it's it's more our values. Like, what are your values? That's important too. If you, for some reason, think that, look, I'm going to make the sacrifice and I'm okay with making that sacrifice because X, Y, or Z, because my religion says so, or my family says so, or because I have this partner who I really love and I want to stay with them forever, so I'm going to repress my desires for, for novelty. If that's the decision you want to make, by all means, you know, you should have the freedom to make it. It's a difficult decision to make though. It's not easy to live with that repression long-term. Maybe you can find ways to channel it in some other creative outlets or some other way. But if you're making that decision, just know that you're setting yourself up for a harder path. So that's the thing with, with the course and all these traits. You can have whatever kind of relationship you want with whatever kinds of traits you want, you can. It's just gonna be harder in some types than in other types, right? So if you're a high se sexual novelty seeker, especially, monogamy is gonna be really hard. There's a very high chance you're gonna cheat. There's a very high chance you're gonna be frustrated and unsatisfied. And I would highly recommend for people who are high novelty seeking to seek out some sort of non-monogamy. It doesn't have to be all the way. It doesn't have to be orgies every weekend, you know. <laughs> but some way to incorporate flexibility and, and openness. Pleasure capacity is kind of a little different. That often, I think of that as being very useful in directing who you end up having sex with. Like if you're one of those people who gets aroused very easily and very quickly and has no trouble orgasming, you're going to have a lot more fun having casual sex in all sorts of unusual settings than at than if you are someone who needs a lot more. And so I th think for the people who need more time, more connection, more perfect environment, like the music has to be right, the lighting has to be right, you know, some of us are much more sensitive to all of those things. Probably people that you know a little better, that you feel more connected to, and maybe more of a either one-on-one -on -one scenario or, yeah, people that you feel closer and in setups that are more, more predictable might be better. So I think that kind of, that trade gives you a, a different dimension, a look into a different dimension in terms of 
in terms of what types, regardless of whether it's going to be monogamy or not monogamy. It's more about the type of, of sex or relationship with your sexual partners that you want to have. Right. Yeah. So you might, maybe poly would be better for you because that's more about having longer term kind of relationships with people who you get to know as opposed to the super casual swinging type relationships where it might be some strangers that you know you're you're fucking and which might be fun on other levels but you might not have as much sexual pleasure yeah out of that than in some other more familiar setting right yeah that all sounds great so i guess Let's talk about real quick infatuation susceptibility mm -hmm. because so I'm going to tell you more about my relationship, Please. which I don't think that <laughs> I mean, you're right in, uh, in the things that you are pointing to. I have a non-monogamous relationship. I'm definitely high in the novelty seeking. My partner, on the other hand, is not. Mm. Uh, so he so far. Uh, he's not completely close to the idea, but so far he's monogamous. And I think that's one of the reasons why, And uh, when you said it, he's very much like he likes um, things that he knows and, mm -hmm. you know, and I like things that I don't know and the unknown is very attractive to me. But yeah, I guess that in my situation, I like to have sexual partners that I'm also like friends with. Mm -hmm. I've never actually had like another boyfriend or another partner but I did have like a like a situation in which I was like catching feelings for someone mm -hmm. and at that point I thought you know maybe maybe that's fine maybe I maybe I do want to have two partners eventually or whatever but afterwards I just kind of realized that because of the novelty seeking aspect and also because time and and also seeing like my friends in really like polyamorous relationships I'm starting to figure out that that might not be like, all the way for me so I feel like I'm kind of in between like an open relationship mm -hmm. and like a polyamorous relationship because what I want is to have friends with benefits kind of thing mm. so then well one of my questions I already alluded to which was how do you deal with that when your friends might catch feelings for you even though they know that, you know, I have a primary partner. But, you know, I don't want to hurt them. Also, what if I catch feelings when I don't want to catch feelings because <laughs> right. it just gets messy and I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want that. So do you have any tips for that? Yeah. <laughs> it's So one of the things is infatuation hits some of us more than other people. So that's, again, another trait that we vary on. How 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 easily do you get infatuated? I think that now with time, I've come to realize that, you know, it might just be infatuation. Like I come back from a festival or whatever mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I have all the feels, but a week later, I might not feel the same way, right? <laughs> so like now I'm realizing that even though I might be susceptible to it, it doesn't last. On the other hand, it also happens that I do not fall for my friends, you mm -hmm. know, and they fall for me, you mm -hmm. know? So it, it really does depend on the person. Yes. Um, right. There's been very few times that I've, you know, like fallen past the first week that I still have feelings mm -hmm. after that, you know? Yeah, you sound like you're pretty low, actually, on or you're on the low side of infatuation, maybe not all the way down. <clears throat> but yeah, so some of us are just a lot more susceptible to it, and it holds onto us for a lot longer and so you might have more issues around trying to manage other people's infatuation with you as opposed to the other way around infatuation happens at least sometimes even even for us who are relatively low on it and I'm also relatively low on it it takes me a while and I don't get infatuated with most people I I'd had sex with you know hundreds and hundreds of people and I've only gotten infatuated with I don't know, you can count them on probably two hands in my entire life. and But still, it can happen to us too. And there are ways to manage it. And most of those ways have to do with limiting to some extent the intimacy that you have with those folks. So limiting the amount of time you spend with them, limiting how often you see the same person, how... <clears throat> 
how like affectionate that time is, like spending the night together versus leaving after having sex, having breakfast in the morning and cuddling versus obviously not doing any of those things. There there are also distractions, having a rotation of partner, partners often helps. And when it's, especially when it's about you and your own infatuation. And what helps me often is going through the list of red flags, the things that I, because infatuation is funny. When those feelings start to creep up on us, we lose all objectivity. We have this rose-colored lens that just drops over our eyes and we tend to see only the positives and downplay the negatives. And even if we see some negatives, we're like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. You know, yeah, he's an alcoholic. Yeah, it's it's okay. You know, we'll figure. (laughs) And so what I try to do in the few times when I was like, oh, this is probably not a good idea. I should not be catching feelings for this person, but it's happening is reminding myself, looking for those signs and then being very, very cognitively aware and intentional about telling myself, nope, this is not going to work. This is really not going to work. Like this cannot work long-term. What you said earlier was really on point. It really depends on the person, even for the people who are not super highly susceptible. There will be that one woman, guy, whatever, or those couple of people that will do that for us. And so knowing yourself and kind of playing with that depending on how far you want to let those feelings go. So if you know like, oh, with this person, it's probably going to take me that direction if I let go and do all the things that I would normally do with other partners. Right? So for me, as someone relatively low on infatuation and susceptibility, I could easily spend a really passionate night together and cuddle and have breakfast and shower in the morning and all that and then say goodbye and be like, I'll see you in a month, Right. So you can do those kinds of things and gaze into each other's eyes and talk about our fears and dreams. I could do all those things. And if that wasn't someone that I was interested in more than just sexually, if I was just like, we're friends with benefits, I could easily do that. But every now and then you meet someone who you're like, oh, shit. Yeah, <sighs> I can't. Yeah, If we spend the night and do all that with you, I can just maybe come over, fuck, leave, and that's it. So so that's your advice to um, limit that. Like if I find someone that I, I do catch feelings for and that's not the kind of thing that I want, just cut it off a little bit or like, you know, uh, restrict it. Restricting it, yeah, and mixing in other people, having kind of distractions. I mean, ultimately, if nothing helps, you kind of have to stop seeing yeah. that person altogether. But yeah, there are some of these ways to kind of limit, restrict. On the managing other people's infatuation, there is some shared responsibility in that regard, I would say. I think the majority of the responsibility is on that person, on the person who's catching feelings. The responsibility on your side is to be very clear and communicate what you are and aren't available for. And... In theory, that would be enough. And in theory, everybody would just listen to that and follow those rules, but obviously it doesn't happen. So I think then becomes kind of a negotiation of how much help they want <laughs> from you in preventing their infatuation and whether you can trust them to, for them to take care of themselves. But it's the same set of strategies if they don't want to limit, then you limit it for them. Yeah. Right? Like, no, we're only going to see each other once a month or once every two months or whatever it is. And no, we're not going to spend the night together. Yeah. And those are the behavioral strategies that you can do on your end. Obviously, you can make them remind themselves of all the negatives that you have you know that's right. yeah, that's on them <laughs> yeah you can't be responsible for other people and i find that now it's easier because i have a boyfriend so that's a very clear mm-hmm. message that they really cannot get right. you know but before i was 
in a committed relationship, I just wanted, I still just wanted friends with benefits with most people and they could catch feelings for me and then I would end up being the bitch and the slut and, you know, all those things. So those are all great tips. Well, we're running out of time and I want to be mindful. So I'm just going to throw my questions to you uh, so you can take whatever time you have. <laughs> we have left to respond. Um, yeah, so that those are tips kind of like for me, you know, in my situation, I'm lucky enough that I have a partner who understands that the fact that I want non-monogamy doesn't mean that he wants to have it. Mm -hmm. I know that's very uncommon, especially given the fact that, you know, he is, he's a man and I'm a woman and, yeah. you know, like society looks at it like it, he's crazy or I'm crazy or we're, we're both. both crazy. <laughs> Um, but what happens, uh, you know, to people who might need different types of relationships and their partners that might not be okay with that? We really are different in the needs that we have, which is why I highly recommend to people to have that com conversation from the beginning, early on, before things get very serious. I think people should have the conversation of the kinds of relationship in terms of monogamy or non-monogamy they're going to want in the near future and what they expect will happen in the more distant future if things are still going well right between us and even if they don't want the same thing are they going to be okay with the, each person having what they need because very often people when they open up they think it has to be the same and it really doesn't like you're a perfect example of that each ideal scenarios where every person gets what they need from that relationship and are hopefully okay with what their partner needs, even if it's something different. And if you're not on the same page, then there are no ideal solutions, as I said earlier. The options really are, there are four options pretty much. You break up and go your separate ways and find some someone who wants something closer to yours okay with what you want you restrict your you repress your desires for what you want so that you get your partner what they want your partner represses their desires so that they can get you what you want or you both repress parts of your desires to meet halfway, right? Those are really I the think, four options. I think that that fourth option is what my partner and I have, have been doing. We both sacrificed a little bit mm -hmm. of like to kind of meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it's it's been good because uh, it's very rare that you find someone that wants exactly what you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good point, yeah. And so if you can have some flexibility around that, I think that really helps. And flexibility is one of those traits that, actually matters quite a bit yeah and how you're gonna go about this yeah well <laughs> thank you so much for that why don't you tell us about what you have going on with your uncensored talks and anything else how sure. people can connect with you sure they can find all information about me at my website drjana.com which i'm sure you'll link to if they're interested in learning about themselves and opening smarter they should obviously come take the course. And then I have this ongoing series of conversations that I have with people from all over the world called Uncensored with Dr. Jana, where we discuss all sorts of topics about sex and relationships in a way that's open, honest, uncensored. It's, it's not a presentation. It's not a talk. It's basically me having a conversation with whoever is in the room and people can engage as much or as little as they want. So far, we've talked about open relationships, casual sex, squirting, con the gray area of consent, of sexual consent, sex work. We're talking about threesomes. We're going to talk about jealousy, anal. I want to talk about everything. I created Uncensored because I felt like we're missing these long format, open, uncensored, conversations where we can ask each other anything and everything about all of these topics and be in the same room, be present in the same room with people who have very different experiences from you. And also at the same time, you get to be in the room with people who share the same kinds of fears and interests and desires and experiences. And so very often people say this really helped me feel less alone. 
And if they can't be there live, we also make the recordings, the audio recordings available afterwards. And we're in the process of creating a shorter podcast version of that as well. Well, thank you so much for this. I really enjoyed it. I definitely, I'm going back home with a lot of tips and things <laughs> to talk about. And I mean, just in general, thank you for the work you do. Thank you. This is super fun. I'm glad we got to do this. Well, I hope you guys got out of this episode as much as I did because I learned so much. I really love Dr. Shanna's work and mission, so if you feel like you could benefit from her work like I did, please check out her course, Open Smarter, or the Uncensored Conversations, which are both linked in our show notes. But even if you don't, I hope you take from her this idea that everyone is unique and that what works for you might not be what works for other people. If you like this episode and feel like someone could benefit from it, please share it. And if you want to reach out, our Instagram is polycuriouspodcast and our Gmail is polycuriouspodcast at gmail.com. Can't wait to hear from you guys and see you all next week.